The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC is available online at www.overlandpark.cc. Welcome to Overland Park Community Church. I was reminded um, as Shay was uh, talking there, uh, I feel sorry for all of the unfamily-friendly services that will be held in churches across the land, right? I don't want to go to that church, <laughs> but anyway, uh, it's good to be with you today. Um, money, <laughs> like, like I feel, I just feel really tempted to, to just go, money, 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 money. Oh, yeah, good. All right, good. <laughs> so money, like uh, money is, has such an impact on us. If we don't have enough of it, it, it certainly causes a lot of stress, right? We Like, man, uh, how we're going to pay the bills, it can cause us stress in marriages. Um, when, when you don't have a, enough, you know, like you are trying to make ends meet, and then it can cause communication problems between a husband and a wife, um, just cause frustrations. Um, and so we look at money and we go, man, if I, if I had a lot of money, like things would be great, you know, I could be I could, I could get the stuff I want, I could get the home I want, or fix these things in my home. Some people are kind of like in this position, well, if I, you know, I don't need a whole, whole lot of money. I mean, I don't need to be rich. I just want enough to do A, B, C, or, or, or D. And so we look at that and we go, um, man, money is important, right? So sometimes we hear these stories of a person that we've watched and and we've heard about it, we know, and, and they seem to be poor, and they die, and they have millions of dollars, like millions. I'm not talking about a little bit. I'm talking about a whole, whole lot of money, and yet they never did anything with it, and it causes, like, you like scratch your head and you go, what? why did they live that way? Like, they, they could have done you know, so much in their own lives, so much in the lives of others around them, so much in the kingdom, and they just had all of that money, and they lived like a poor person. They're misers, like hoarders, just holding it in all for themselves. So some of you are going, where's he going with this? Like, <laughs> and so when we look at that in the kingdom, that happens often with spiritual wealth. Like we're wealthy people, beyond measure, yet we hoard up the blessings and we never do anything with them. And God has given us all this incredible wealth um, spiritually to be utilized uh, for the blessing of the world. And so when we look at the book of Ephesians, when we get into this book, and we're just going to kind of go by, go through it verse by verse and unpack it and let it speak to us. But but this is a this is a book where um, the, the Lord is telling us through the Apostle Paul that we are spiritually rich. Like, like if we know Jesus, we are spiritually rich people and we shouldn't be living like paupers. We shouldn't be misers. We shouldn't just be hoarding this in all for ourselves. There's a reason that God has blessed us with this spiritual wealth. And so it's it's not a book. It's It's kind of a different letter that Paul writes. It's not a letter like, we looked at, at 1 John a couple of months ago. We were in it and going through verse by verse, and, and John is dealing with um, heresy. He's, like, he's trying to correct this stuff that's being taught in the church that is wrong, and so he writes a letter to the church, and he's trying to, you know, he's trying to correct it. In 1 Corinthians and, and 2 Corinthians, we find a church 
that is just plagued by problems. And so Paul is writing to them, and he's trying to address the conflict and the problems that are going on in the church. But in Ephesians, we don't get any of that. As a matter of fact, um, it's not even a letter that is written directly to one specific church. Um, you know, scholars agree that it's a letter that was meant to be circulated. And so Paul, he is used to write this letter, and, and every book of the Bible, if you study them, they all have themes. For instance, all of the different Gospels, they have different themes. Matthew, um, the theme of the Gospel of Matthew is the kingdom of God. Um, when we get into the letters, some of the epistles, the theme in Galatians is liberty, our, our freedom in Christ. And when we get to the theme of Ephesians, it is all about our riches in Christ, that we are wealthy people in Christ. And so um, we're, we're going to unpack this book, and my hope is over the next few weeks as we're unpacking it, is that we become a body of believers, that, that you're edified, you're built up as believers, and you learn how to be rich. Like you learn how to be spiritually rich and not a miser. And so... Like, one of the things I want our church to be known for is, man, those people love the Lord, and they love me. Like, it just, you can tell that they have the blessing of God on their lives simply by the way that they bless me with the, uh, their own lives and how God is moving in their midst. And that's the kind of um, people that the Lord wants us to be. And so when we look at this, um, the first thing I want you to take away, and, and we're only going to do three verses today, and, and so the, the message may be kind of short. Is that all right? Yeah, I thought y'all would like that. I couldn't go beyond that because it would, it would get a whole lot longer if I went any further. So it was either get really, really long or, or stay short. And so we'll, we'll go the short route today. But, but the first thing um, that, that I want you to see is that Paul, the miser, became wiser. So the first thing that we see in verse 1, the very first part of it, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And so, like, we have to ask the question, well, who the heck is Paul? Well, if you've been around church very long, you know, but some, some folks don't know. Who is Paul? Well, Paul is a very interesting guy, and I love the fact that the Lord used this guy to write um, uh, this, this letter because he certainly was a, a, a miser. And not only that, he, he, he thought he was spiritually wealthy, and he was broke before, um, but he, he was just kind of hoarding up the things of God in a confusing way, and, and he was totally misdirected in his life. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul was anti-Christ. Remember how we studied in John uh, a few weeks ago, and I said, listen, anything that is against Jesus is anti-Christ. That's what John was telling us in his letter to the church. And so Paul was certainly there. He was anti-Christ. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was um, very successful the Sanhedrin was a group of religious people in the Jewish community who were charged with um, teaching the things of God, the law of God, all the way back from the time of Moses. And there was no, not a um, FedEx copy center around where they could circulate documents. Very difficult and expensive. As a matter of fact, they wrote on a, a material called papyrus, which was animal skins that were dried out and very thin, and they would write. It was a very difficult thing for them to do to write down stuff. So it was an oral society. They passed down through memorization. And, and the Sanhedrin, um, were they were kind of looked up to in the Jewish community. Like, they, they were the guys. Like, we look up to them and we go, man, 
they, they are, they're smart, they're educated. A lot of times in our culture, we, we look up to, to people who are in medicine, the, you know, the brain surgeons, the, um, the surgeons and the doctors, and we go, man, they, these guys are, are, are very intelligent people, and they've studied a long time, and, and so they, they get respect because of all that they know, and we trust them. Well, um, for the Jewish people, the Sanhedrin were like that. Because their job was, and, and to become a member of the Sanhedrin was a very, very difficult thing. Um, first, in order to like be apprenticed by one of these guys, you had to be a very smart kid. And so all of the kids were required growing up to memorize certain things of the Bible. All the Jewish kids had to memorize the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They were charged with that responsibility. But then it went on from there. If you were good enough to make it through that school, then you would go through the next school to ultimately you could learn enough um, and have enough knowledge about the Old Testament, all that God had given us through um, the law, through Moses and all of the prophets, that you could teach it to the people because it was an oral society, and that's how they did it. They, they passed it down through these um, um, different priests teaching these things. And so um, the Sanhedrin were people um, that were set aside specifically to make rulings within the Jewish community. And so Paul was a member of that. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and he is the Messiah. And the Jewish people, the Sanhedrin, rejected Jesus as Messiah. And so their leaders led them into that rejection, and they did not claim that Jesus was the Savior of the world who was going to, um, uh, you know, fix all things. They were, they were looking for more of a political leader. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, the, the, the Sanhedrin are so far from God's original intention that Jesus begins to oppose them publicly. And we see that even when he goes to the temple and he clears the temple out, and he throws the tables over, and, and he's scattering everything. It, it, it doesn't have as much to do with them selling in the temple as much as it has to do as a demonstration from God in the flesh that he's attacking religion. He's declaring war on religion as it existed. He's showing them that things are totally messed up. And so we know that in the story of the gospel that Jesus he comes, he teaches for several years, he sets aside some, some uh, of his own disciples, and then he dies on the cross of Calvary, he rises from the dead three days later, he interacts with people all over Jerusalem, there are over 500 people who interact with him and see him as eyewitnesses, and then on the day of Pentecost, he tells them to go back to Jerusalem, he says, wait, that the, the something special is going to happen on this particular day. So on this particular day that Jesus is talking about, is the day of Pentecost. And on that day, the Spirit of God descends down on humanity, and all those who uh, believe in Jesus and have accepted Jesus as Messiah are indwelt with God the Holy Spirit. We have God the Father, who uh, we, we see as creator. We have God the Son, who comes in His physical presence. God is on the planet in the form of Jesus, God the Son, and then he goes, rises from the dead, goes back, is seated in the heavenly places, um, and we have God the Holy Spirit who is sent down to indwell in the hearts of believers. And so when this happens, the church comes out of the ground, man, and people are like, they're so fired up. They're like, it's this transformation is happening in the midst of human beings, and they're excited, and they're, 
they're, they're, they, they, they have interacted with Jesus and the, the move of God is upon them. And it, it's much like when we study the Bible, the Lord is moving again like he did during the time of Moses. And so God is moving. So the church comes out of the ground. Well, the Sanhedrin were losing influence because Jewish people were giving their lives to Jesus. And when they gave their lives to Jesus, it meant that they were rejecting everything that the Sanhedrin and the, and the high priests and all of those people were teaching. And so there was influence that was being lost um, from these people. And Paul, was a, he was a part of that group. And so the Christians had to be stopped. And so God, uh, or so Paul decides that he is going to be on mission and he's going to go stop them. And so he's arresting Christians right and left. He's trying to stop the move of the Lord. And so on one particular occasion, and you could study about the life of Paul in the book of Acts. He's riding his donkey. He's on his way to Damascus, and he's going to lock up some Christians that he's heard that there's a movement there. And as he's on his way to Damascus, he encounters a bright light. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who shows up in his resurrected form and knocks Paul right off of his donkey, okay? And so there he is, and Paul knows he's in the presence of God. So here's what I love about this story and why I'm taking the time, because this, this really like is important as we begin to unpack Ephesians, because Ephesians is a letter like you write it, and it has so much in it. It is like, you read it, it tells us what the purpose of the church is, what our purpose is as members of the body of Christ on the planet. And so here's a guy who is anti-Jesus, and he meets Jesus. He is so anti-Jesus that he is attacking Christians. The first martyr, Stephen, he is he is killed for believing in Jesus, and Paul is the one who gives the thumbs up for his execution. That's how bad it was. But when he encounters Jesus, Jesus tells him, um, he says, I want you to go, and I want you to wait, and I have set you aside, and he's blinded, man. He can't even see because of this interaction with Christ. He is unable to see because of the, the miraculous power of the presence of Christ in his life. He's blinded, and he's, he's scared to death. And he says, who are you? And he tells him, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. He says, I want you to go on into town. There's a guy by the name of um, Ananias, and he's going to come, and he's going to pray for you, and your, your sight will be returned because I have set you aside for a special purpose. And so the special purpose that Paul was um, given, he was called by Jesus, so he becomes an apostle. And the special purpose that he is given is he is going to take the Gentiles or take the gospel beyond Jerusalem to the Gentiles. And so he meets Christ, and his, his mission is to go and take the gospel to the Gentile. Now, what is the Gentile world? Anybody who's not a Jew. So all through um, the Greco-Roman world, Paul's mission was to take the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ into all the, beyond Jerusalem. And so as he begins to do that, um, what, what we see is that in AD 53, he establishes a church in Ephesus. And it is part of an evangelistic endeavor that is one of the most incredible things that ever happened in the history of the church. 
Like, man, there, there is a move of God, and people are giving their lives to Jesus, and Paul is planting churches all over these regions, and he plants one in um, the city of Ephesus, and Ephesus was an, a city of incredible wealth. Um, they had the Temple of Diana, or the Temple of Artemis. This large object had fallen out of the sky, probably a meteor or something, and um, they, they set it up in a, a temple, and they started worshiping it to the goddess of Diana. And so they were, it was a very wealthy city, uh, strategically placed um, on a route. And, and so people, uh, as they would, as they would um, go from place to place, there was a lot of commerce that took place there because of this temple. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. Um, only the foundation of it exists today. But this is where Paul planted this, this church. And as he plants this church, um, 10 years later, he writes them, this letter. And he writes the letter from prison. So Paul is locked up in prison. And while he is on trial for his life, he is more concerned about the needs of the church than he is his own life. So he writes this letter and he's going to send it to the church by the name of a guy by the name of Tychicus. He also writes the letter to Philemon. It's one, a one-page letter, we see it, and there's a guy by the name of Onesimus who was a slave who ran away from his master, and he, he ends up getting saved, and so Paul sends a letter through Onesimus, and he says, you need to go back to your master and take this letter. And so we have that letter, and then we have the book of Colossians also that have, are written. And so he writes these three letters, and he sends one by on, uh, uh, Onesimus back to Philemon, and the other two through Tychicus. And Tychicus is to go back to Ephesus, and he is to encourage um, the Christians in this church. And then the letter is to be circulated among all the churches. And so when we come to this letter, we could really say, Dear Church. And so as we unpack this, this is incredibly encouraging to me. It's like, like Paul is saying to all of us, dear church, and we might even personalize it a little bit more. He might say, dear Jeff, dear Abe, dear Scott, dear Bob, dear Coop. Or would he say Tim? I don't know. But he says, dear church, like I have a, I have a word for you. And so we see that he was in this place that he was a total miser. Even worse than that, he wasn't just hoarding spiritual blessings. He didn't even know Jesus. And God calls him from that place and sets him aside to write a letter to the church that even we can read today and we can apply to our lives. And I love this fact because, because he's, he's writing from a perspective that is so anti-Jesus that he becomes pro-Jesus, and he knows, he knows the Old Testament. He knows the prophets. He knows everything about um, what the Jewish people have been taught all their lives. He is an expert in this stuff. But now he has been illuminated by the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of him, and God sets him aside, and he says to us, Dear church, and that's the first thing we learn in the very first part of the, uh, the first verse. But the second verse, we have to ask, well, who are the people that he's writing to. And he says this in the second part of verse 1 and, and verse 2. To saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's like, dear church, the second thing he wants us to know is that we're saints. And I would say to you, you're either a saint or you ain't. Okay, forgive the grammar, 
I like the way it sounds. It's kind of sticky. You're either a saint or you ain't. Paul addressed the letter specifically to saints in Ephesus. Now, it might be surprising to you because saints, um, we, we think of saints typically as dead people who have achieved spiritual eminence and, and given a specific title. A lot of times when I preach funerals, um, and fortunately for you guys, I haven't preached a lot of funerals, amen? But I have preached a lot of funerals back in Oklahoma, and a lot of times, man, I, when a person is in the church and, and they're like, man, they're, they're, they're just serving the Lord, I'll talk about them as saints. Matter of fact, the last uh, funeral that I did in Oklahoma, it was a friend of mine, um, he, he was in the church, older gentleman, he was also my neighbor, and I had gone back uh, a couple of months before, um, and, and I knew his health was getting bad, and I was able to see him, and, and I think like the next, it wasn't a couple of months, because it was only a week or so later he died, but he said, I don't want you. He said, I know, Jimmy, that when you did Buck Bewley's funeral, you referred to him as a saint. I don't want you to refer to me as a saint, Jimmy. I said, look, Don, I said, are you preaching this funeral or am I? Okay. And when we're saints, we're saints. And so we get confused by this because sometimes um, we, we, when we think of a saint, even the, the word saint, like we look at it in the New Testament, there's not a word that suffered more than the word saint. Even in the dictionary, it says a person who is officially recognized for holiness of life. So who makes this recognition? Well, usually it is a religious body of some sort who makes the recognition. And a deceased person's life is examined to see if he qualifies for sainthood. And so his character and his conduct must be above reproach, and he he must be responsible for working at least two miracles, and he can qualify as a saint. Now, interestingly, this is nowhere taught in Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture is this taught whatsoever that that's what we're supposed to be doing. In this brief letter, which is only six chapters long, um, Paul nine times addresses his readers as saints, and they're all alive. The term saint in the New Testament is used to describe one who has trusted Christ as Savior. The psalmist has said, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And so we find Christians called um, disciples, people of the way, little Christ, and saints. So it means one who is set apart. And so when a person trusts Christ, they are taken out of the world and placed in Christ. The, The term saint is a positional term. So when I trust Christ as Savior, I am taken out of the world spiritually, and I'm placed in Christ. Now, this is incredibly important for us to understand if we're going to learn how to be rich when it comes to spiritual wealth living out our lives on the planet. Because we are... Uh, spiritually taken out of the world, but physically we're still in the world, and that's why we're supposed to be um, in the world and not of it. We're supposed to be the people of God. We're the saints of God. And so as I look at you, it's encouraging to me that I get to pastor a church that's filled with a bunch of saints. Amen? 
You say, well, you don't know my husband. <laughs> no, you're, you're saints of God. And so it means that when a person trusts Christ, again, they're taken out of the world, they're placed in Christ, placed in Christ. And so we're, we're like scuba divers. We, we are living in a world that is, um, we're, we're made for a different world. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, I find in myself a desire in which this world cannot fulfill. I have determined that I was made for another world. And that's right. Like, there's, there's not, there, there's a certain part of you, um, when you are taken out of the world spiritually and placed in Christ, there's a certain part of you that will never be satisfied on this side of eternity because there's a desire in you that longs and yearns to be with the physical resurrected Christ because the spiritual resurrected Christ is made alive in you. That's what the day of Pentecost is all about, is that we become saints of God because the Spirit of God lives inside of us. We are indwelt with the Spirit of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So he lives inside of us, and like scuba, uh, scuba divers, we live in an environment that we um, have special equipment in order to be able to, sh- to, to survive or, or tools to utilize for us to be in the world and not of the world, and that special equipment is the indwelling of the Spirit. And so how does this happen? Well, the answer is found in two words in this passage, and it is the words faith and grace. Okay, so faith and grace are essential for us to understand sainthood, of which the the goal of the gospel is that people would become saints of God, and it happens through these two words called faith and grace. The word grace is used 12 times in Ephesians, and it explains or describes the kindness of God toward undeserving people. So, so grace, we say, is unmerited favor. Grace is you don't deserve um, anything that you're getting. That's what grace is. So when we look at people who are saints, they're not people who are sainted because they deserve anything. You don't deserve it. It is only by grace that you can become a saint of God. And so we look and we see that over 12 times in this short letter, the word grace is used. The phrase in Christ in Christ Jesus, is used 27 times, and again, it describes the spiritual position of a believer. So when we're identified with Jesus, we are in Christ. Okay, so I often say, well, because there, 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 sometimes people get hung up and say, well, um, you know, does a person know the Lord? Like, I'm up here, I'm proclaiming the truth of the gospel, the truth of the word. I'm trying to edify you as a body. And so as I'm teaching you and I'm looking out there, my hope is that every one of you know Jesus. But the truth of the matter is, I don't know for sure if you do. I can look and see whether or not you have fruit in your life. And so how do we know if a person, how do you know individually as to whether or not you are in Christ? uh, Or if you know Jesus and you're saved from your sin and you're taken out of this world spiritually and put in Christ? Well, I often will explain that, that by grace, the invitation is given from God to give us a gift that we don't deserve. So anybody, anybody who is on their way to heaven and they're genuinely saved in Christ, they realize they don't deserve to be because it is through grace that we are, we, we are saved by, by grace. And so when that grace comes into our lives and we accept it and we believe in it and we say, Lord Jesus, and again, that word Lord 
Jesus is very important. Not just Jesus, but Jesus as Lord of my life. I believe in you. I recognize I'm a sinner. I confess my sin, ask you to forgive me, and would you come and be Lord of my life? At that moment, we are placed in Christ. And so positionally, we're taken out of the world, which God cannot look at us and be pleased with us because we are offensive to him because there is no covering for our sin. But as soon as we believe in Jesus, he covers our sin, and positionally, we are changed in Christ. And so faith is when we go, here is Jesus, here is me. And Jesus has come through grace. He came on the cross. He died a sinner's death. He, desired, he, he received all the punishment that I deserved. And, and he rose from the dead to conquer sin, hell, and the grave. And so when I look to Jesus and I look to that and I say, I believe in Jesus. Only Jesus can save me from my sins. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I believe that Jesus came and he actually lived and he died and he conquered death. I believe that he was the logos, the very word of God in flesh. And I point to that and I say, with my life and with my heart, I believe in him. There's the grace. Here's the faith. I'm placing my faith in that grace and I'm covered in Christ. And so my position has changed. Now, why is that important? Because faith and grace are inseparable. And when, we, when we're dealing with the question, does a person know Jesus? The question must be asked, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were saved? Like, when you came to know Christ, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Now, is there scriptural precedence for this? Write this down if you're taking notes. Study Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. The question is asked, did you receive the Holy Spirit? He said, I don't even know anything about a Holy Spirit. And Paul begins to explain the essential of having the Holy Spirit in your life. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Paul teaches this very important theological truth. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So how do we know whether this has happened. You have the Spirit of God living in you. Now, as we proceed through chapter one, we will see that Paul talks about the seal of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, like this is the proof, the one who testifies that you are in Christ and your position has changed from being in the world spiritually to being in Christ. It is essential that you have the Holy Spirit. Unless you have the witness of the Spirit, you cannot draw on the wealth of the Spirit. All of the spiritual blessing of God. So we have a lot of people who believe in Jesus. This is like, it's really, really important. Especially like where we live. Most of the people that you will interact with in our community believe in Jesus. But that does not necessarily mean that they have the spirit of Christ. The book of James, who was written, which was written by the half-brother of Jesus, tells us that as, as, he's, as he's explaining to us about faith, he says, you believe in Jesus, you do well, but even the demons in hell believe in Jesus. But they don't have the Spirit of God. So we have to have faith that goes to work. But yet we have this dilemma. You cannot be saved by your works. You cannot please God with what you do, but 
James tells us faith without works is dead. So works must accompany the faith. So the faith and the grace, when I see the grace and I recognize the grace and I place faith in it, then what happens is I'm moved into a different position. And when you have the witness of the Spirit in your life, you can draw on the wealth of the Spirit. And so Paul is giving us the big idea of today's talk, and it is be rich. Just because you believe in Jesus doesn't mean you can live like a spiritually rich person. You had better have the Spirit of God. How do you know if you have the Spirit of God? You know. Like, can I look at you? Maybe, you know, maybe. Christina, no, no, no. No, I can't do that. That is not my job. My job is the proclamation of the gospel. My job is the edification of the body. My job is just explaining to you this is what the Word teaches. I can't have faith for you. But when you have faith and the Spirit of God rushes into your life, you know. You're like, I know him because he lives in you. And, and, and to really, to be quite honest with you, it is one of the most difficult things to explain. I try, I've been trying to develop my ability to do this for decades. It's to explain the transformation that happens when we meet Christ. And we get to verse 3, and this is why this is so, so important as we, we continue to unpack Ephesians. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. All of our spiritual blessings are with Jesus in heavenly realms. If we have not been taken out of the world spiritually and united with Christ, we cannot access the spiritual blessings that are with Christ in heaven. This thought came to me um, not too long ago, and I've been teaching the, the word for, for a long time. But often I think, because Jesus is in resurrected form, we kind of think that he's in heaven as a spirit. He's not. He's in heaven physically. Like remember, he is the first fruits of the resurrection. That 1 Corinthians chapter 15 teaches us that he had to be sown perishable and raised imperishable. And so he came out of the ground after three days of being dead with a body that was built for eternity. And so the physical Jesus is, is sitting in heaven right now. And the Apostle Paul, through the power and leading of the Holy Spirit, has written to us, all of our spiritual blessings are with Jesus in heaven right now. Now, as we bring this together, we inherit the wealth by faith. Here I am in the world, and I see Christ, and I see the grace, and by faith, I'm placed in Christ. At that point, I have inherited all my spiritual wealth. So it is mine. It is available to me. But we invest that wealth by works. And so I, 
Like what the Lord wants us to do is he wants us to recognize we're wealthy. And because of our recognition of the wealth, we go to work. We, so in our economy, it's very confusing because we work to get wealthy, right? But in the economy of God, we don't work to get wealthy. We just believe. And we're made wealthy. And then when we're made wealthy, we work. And so you can't, you can't get those out of order because that's why, again, G, James is teaching us faith without works is dead. If we really have faith, we'll go to work. And if we really understand how wealthy we are spiritually, we can't help but work because we understand the grace of God that has covered our lives. And we are saints of God, wealthy saints of God with all the spiritual wealth that we could ever spend on the planet. That's good news, man. And so we look at that and we go, okay, um, if you are in Christ, you are rich. So be rich this week. Don't be a miser. Don't let all your, don't come to the point of your, the end of your life and like you, then you realize you're wealthy. Like spend it. Spend it now and spend it on others. Look at how God may use you to bless others. Take all those spiritual blessings that are with Jesus right now on the throne and pull them down on earth. This, this begins to just line everything up. Why did Jesus tell us when you pray, Father, like pray that um, our Father who art in heaven, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? He says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven what is he talking about he's talking about spiritually wealthy people understanding the most important thing in your life is understanding who you are in Christ and living that way not putting that on a, the end of your life as a period but putting it at the beginning of your life and saying everything Everything in my life, my career, my marriage, my children, my hobbies, everything is to be centered on Jesus and put him first and live that way. And all of a sudden, we'll begin to realize that our wealth is coming down to the planet. Be rich, guys. Like you're saints of God. Don't live like spiritual poor people. Unload the blessing of God on the planet. That's what he wants us to do. And so this morning, as we, as we have this time, like we're going to take communion. And we're going to remember. What are we remembering? We're going to remember that when Jesus gave his body on the cross of Calvary, why was he doing that? To turn me into a saint. We're going to remember that when we, when we, when we partake of the, the juice and we, we, we drink it, what, what are we doing there? And Jesus is saying, you remember that you are a sinner. And when, when, when you drink of the, the fruit of the vine, remember that my blood has washed away your sin. That positionally, you're no longer in the world. That spiritually, I have put you in me. And so you need to feast on my body and feast on my blood. It needs to be your spiritual sustenance. Jesus is everything. And so we do that to remember that this, 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 this thing has happened to us, that we've been transformed in Christ. We are no longer our own. And so I, I, as the ushers serve us, and, and Brent leads us in this song, I think it's good for us to kind of just sit there and, 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 and meditate on this truth and go, 
man, I am in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, then invite him to be the Lord of your life today. Confess him as Savior. Ask him to change your position spiritually and hide you in himself. That's what it means to be born again. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at www.overlandpark.cc.